Refine Labs. This is State of Demand Gen. We're doing a, a TikTok live here. We're going to get into some questions. CEO AMA, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chris Walker. I own and operate a company called Refine Labs. We've built a $20 million business in less than three years. And so I am happy to share my thoughts doing this to help help everyone here in the TikTok community get better, start their business, get promoted, start to make more money, all those different things. So have, here to help on anything. So if you have questions, feel free to drop them in. This is an open Q&A. Okay, we got, uh, we got a question here. Using self-reported attribution, what would you dig deeper on in the initial call to dig deeper into vague responses? I wouldn't, I don't know. Like um, this is, there is, I, I think people confuse the idea of like, what is the purpose of this? The purpose of this is to collect a data point at the time of conversion that indicates where the customer heard about you. And so I feel like people continue to sort of like misinterpret this and then try and pass it over to sales and get a deeper answer and then try and translate it back into Salesforce or something like that. It just creates ton like you would never do that in market research. It doesn't make sense to do it here. So I, uh, I personally wouldn't recommend that and wouldn't do it. If you want to have, if your sales team is going to do that anyway, sure. But like, I wouldn't try and pass that back and try and like edit or modify the self-reported attribution data. That's not what you do in market research. You don't modify what people say. Okay, we got a question here. Thoughts on Metadata's platform and running the Chris Walker paid ads platform using it? Christina, this is a great question. When you look at the Metadata platform, I basically see two big things. You have one part of it that you can do custom targeting for Facebook and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram doesn't have strong B2B targeting methods. It's difficult to reach there. Unlike LinkedIn, you need a tool like that if you wanna go out and target CFOs at, at a specific set of target accounts or any other type of criteria you would do for B2B. And so for that specific use case, I think that there's a lot of value in that. If you try and run what you're calling the Chris Walker paid ads playbook through the metadata platform, it's not gonna work because Metadata's platform is an automated lead generation machine. It optimizes for lead gen forms or conversions. And so the only reason to use the full platform would be to run autonomous lead generation programs, which obviously is not part of my paid ads playbook. If they innovated on their product and we were able to run and optimize against different objectives, then perhaps we, we would consider using it. But at the moment, the, the platform that they market and sell does not meet the needs of running that playbook. Could you expand on the idea of revenue operations? Who are they? Um, revenue operations, like many other functions, has sort of been created out of the technology suite. And then they, so the technology gets produced, like lean data and all these other sort of like RevOps platforms. And they create a new thing like revenue operations, which is basically just taking marketing ops, sales ops, customer success ops, if you even have that, putting them together and then siloing them back down is what happens for the most part. You don't typically see a RevOps function that is actually spread out across the entire revenue system. This is a, in in my view, an operational function, at least it's how I see it's practiced today. I wish there was more strategic thing involved in it, but basically there's a reporting component, there's a technology component, there's a data component. It's very much a operational, how do we run this machine? And I think that a lot of companies should think about whether they need a different function or a different set of people to think about how are we going to innovate? How are we going to change the business? How are we going to do research and development to figure out what are the next new programs that we should do? How are we going to understand our customers better so that we can deliver a better customer experience? How are we going to launch net new 
programs into market like a podcast or TikTok or TikTok Live or things like that so that we continuously have a pipeline of stuff. And, and so I, I don't see revenue ops doing any of that stuff. And I see it as a major gap in B2B companies in, in terms of what I'm calling revenue R&D. Just like you innovate on your product and software companies spend 25% of revenue on product R&D, companies need to start thinking about whether they need to start investing more aggressively in revenue R&D. Because they're not doing R&D, they are not releasing new program revenue programs to market that are driving better results. They're not enhancing or optimizing current programs to make them better. They're not scrutinizing programs that should never be there in the first place. They're not understanding customers. They're not trying to deliver a better customer experience. There are many things here that are big opportunities for companies that I would put in a R&D, revenue R&D category outside of revenue ops that I would like to see somebody take on. Um, should marketers be category experts and understand category development, competitors, and differentiation? I think like no matter what framework you want to use, strategic narrative, core positioning, category design, whichever framework you want to use, like it's part of marketing to figure out how we're going to position our products, how we're going to assess the market, how we're going to understand customers, how are we then going to figure out who is the right customer, how are we going to position appropriately so that they feel like we're built just for them and then to move forward. So I think that category design is a uh, is an incredible skill. I think that creating demand is an incredible skill. There are many sub skills un under marketing that are critically important and can drive a lot of success. Uh, Christina says, uh, in terms of the paid, mostly educational content using LinkedIn ads, optimizing for reach and video views. Yeah. So Christina, you're, you, you must be doing that without metadata that I imagine. So, um, cool. Thanks for that insight. We got another question here. Where does brand marketing fit in the org in terms of real marketing? Um, so as we've talked about, uh, multiple times, I think that companies should stop looking at this in terms of like brand demand field and stuff like that, and just separate it into the goals of the function is your goal to create demand or to capture demand. And then if you put it into those buckets, then things like sales, SDRs, SEO, SEM, lead gen, content syndication review sites, review marketing, all those things, all those fall into capture demand. And if businesses actually looked, they would realize that they spend somewhere between 90, 95 and 99% of their budget on capturing demand. And then you over here, you have the create demand bucket, which should have subject matter experts, dark social experts, people that are active in communities, producing podcasts, producing video content, creatives, brand people, you got all these people over here. So uh, I would put uh, brand marketing as a sub function of creating demand. For all the people that are new here, great to have you here. This is another TikTok live. Uh, if you have any questions, this is an open Q&A. It doesn't have to be all about B2B marketing. So if you have questions on career, finances, how you got promoted, if you want to know how sort of I got here, I'd be happy to share some of the things that I've learned along the way and what worked for me. So just here to help. In the experimental phase, should you use paid social to distribute content to speed up learnings? So I've done this historically, and I think it depend, it's dependent on the platform and where you are and how well you understand customers and how much confidence you have in your point of view and the content that you're producing. I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure that accelerate learnings is the right way to look at this. I think the right way to look at this is if you look at all of the expenses, like add up all of your expenses in marketing, let's talk about a series 
Series D SaaS company, they probably spend somewhere between 10 and $20 million a year on marketing, let's just call it a million dollars a month. And they got all these people doing websites, creating content, and then they just push it out organic and hope that people find it. And so if they just took this little incremental stuff and it went from a million dollars a month and it and maybe they find a way to shave it down and they add 50K to paid distribution, what they would find is that extra 5% would drive massive impact and blend down overall customer acquisition costs because it drives far more effectiveness than the actual cost relative to the whole the whole expenditure. So I think that uh, I think companies should consider that there is an element of speedy like using it to speed up learnings. But I think that is a I don't think that's a great strategy. I think the best strategy is to you like understand your customers well enough so that you're not guessing because like how do you how are you going to quantify whether it's working or not if you use ads and paid social most pay, most paid social ads are not going to get the the engagement in the comments like you would in an organic post and so what are you going to look at in order to say whether or not it's working i think that if you do that you're very prone to making the wrong interpretations of data and making the wrong decisions the best thing to, if you're trying to understand your customers the best thing to do is go and talk to your customers in your perspective, what are the arguments SaaS vendors and Forrester are making against self-reported attribution? I wasn't aware that Forrester was making any arguments against self-reported attribution. Um, and the only people, that, there's plenty of software companies that love doing self-reported attribution. If you look, the only people that are criticizing self-reported attribution are attribution software vendors no shit it's competitive and they see it as competitive not supplementary the truth is and i posted this today i'm not over here saying that attribution software is terrible and you should never use it what i'm saying is i'm helping you see all of the flaws that come with using attribution software as the sole way to measure the effectiveness of your marketing which is that you don't effectively measure capture demand it misses tons of touch points you're overweighted to to capturing demand and you end up like all the other companies spending 90 95 to 99 percent of your budget on capturing demand because you get what you measure and what I'm saying instead is that you can keep doing what you're doing in the in your you know attribution software land and acknowledge that that is going to help you make decisions on how you're capturing demand and how you're measuring transactional direct response lead gen programs from websites and things like that that are going to sell that data or pass that data along. And there are plenty of other platforms and touch points that don't have that luxury. They also tend to be far more effective. And so like the, the fact of the matter is that self-reported attribution provides a data point that most companies simply do not get right now, which is why all marketing strategies look so homogenous. And it's why no B2B companies are significantly innovating out there because their measurement system prevents them from doing anything, doing anything innovative. When it comes to the actual self-reported, the things that I've heard, and I'm just sort of laughable, but some of the things that I've heard, the customer's not gonna remember. It's like, I've, I've read more than a thousand submissions that come through our website. And let me tell you, the customer remembers. The customer remembers. So there's, there's like that one. It's like, oh, so what, what would you rather trust? The customer and what they say? Or this software that says, because someone came to Google, that's how they heard about you. And you're just inferring or guessing or making assumptions. So I've heard, it, I've heard that one. I've heard, oh, if you add this to your field, it's gonna decrease conversion rates. And we've run tests with three separate companies and shown that there's no statistical difference in the drop-off rates or conversion rates when you add this field to your form. 
And what we do is we actually take out fields and conversion rates improve. It's so funny. Companies never, you, you go in, you look at their, you know, demo forms and they got like nine fields in there and they're asking for like what country and they got a bunch of rant, like, you know, custom random questions and they literally have nine fields. And then you go in and you say, okay, what's, what's implement self-reported attribution. And they're like, no, no, no. The conversion rate's going to go down. And it's like, you got nine, you got nine fields on your form right now. It's clear that you don't give a fuck about the conversion rates, but you're just using this as an excuse not to do something new. You could easily take out five of these fields if you wanted to, and you could have done that for the past six months, but you're not. So generally like the, the pushback that comes on self-reported attribution comes from two camps. One is because they see their vendors that see it as competitive. So obviously they're going to try and discredit the system. And number two, marketers using old in you know old thinking and insights to think about the conversion rate data that they they found in 2011 from like optimizely to decide that oh like i'm gonna make some excuse so that i don't have to do this because they don't uh, i don't even want to infer that but a lot of people like a lot of people say that they don't uh that marketers wouldn't want to hear the insights because it would show you know things that they don't want to see I don't know what to say as a marketer. This is the most impactful innovation that I've, that I've experienced. And a lot of people are saying this too, in my career, to be able to defend the programs that I'm doing, be able to, to know what's working and what's not to be able to have direct connections with customers, to see what customers are saying, and then which ones convert into pipeline or revenue, and then be able to use that to innovate in my strategy. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Okay, Christina, best way to test the waters with Facebook ads with a limited budget uh, retargeting. Christina, ret retargeting could be a good solution if you have a limited budget. Um, another option, depending on the quality of the site traffic that you're getting, right? If you like have some big SEO strategy and you're selling financial business software and you have a blog about budgeting that's getting a million people a month that are looking for mint.com, but they find your blog and they could never buy your software, then retar like retargeting can be a very poor strategy in those cases. But let's assume that you have quality website traffic. Um, on the Facebook side, they've taken away a lot of different targeting options. So I think natively, you might be restricted to retargeting without a targeting tool, depending on who you're going after. But you could take the retargeting audience or you could look at us, you could take an audience from a specific page, let's say your home page or your pricing page or your demo page, provided that you have enough traffic. And then you could actually retarget that sub segment. And then you could use Facebook's algorithmic audience expansion, which by the way, for everyone listening, Facebook's algorithmic audience, audience expansion is nothing more than higher, high quality intent data, a lot higher, a lot higher quality than probably the data that's being sold by other vendors. Facebook has their has a pixel on every single website on earth. Basically, they have like when I go and I'm evaluating a tool and I go to a competitor's website and then I get retargeted by a different company because Facebook knows that I went to that other website to round this out, to put it simply, I would go retargeting. I would put, I would try and figure out how do I identify page or pages or a sub segment of traffic that's higher quality. And then I would add audience expansion and let the Facebook and Instagram algorithm sort of run. Another thing to think about is that depending on like your audience and things like that, Facebook organic is an interesting channel right now because at like iOS 14 came in, ad dollars have pushed far away from Facebook and Instagram and a lot of people are moving off of Facebook as a pure plat the face the actual Facebook platform. So there's potentially an opportunity in Facebook organic too. any insights on how to vet find 
or when to use influencers for B2B products. I think the move here is to be present in dark social. Tim, I appreciate the question. To be present in dark social, to go into things with the right intent, to build relationships with people, right? I have great relationships with Gatano Donardi and Dave Gerhardt and MJ Peters and a bunch of other people. And so if I, and then if you do have the need for a campaign, then you already have this relationship to reach out. I can't tell you how many times I get, I get like cold spam messages asking me to be an influencer for their product or to like speak at their events so they can draw a bigger audience. And it's like, I don't need to do that stuff. Right. And so the second piece here, and I think why, there's a couple of reasons why influencers, which I'm going to call key opinion leaders from, from now on, because I think it's just a more accurate thing. Some of the issues here is that companies don't measure it effectively. They measure it like affiliate marketing, not influencer marketing or key opinion leader marketing. So they don't measure it appropriately, which drives them to do the wrong things, which becomes transactional, like I mentioned, affiliate marketing in order for it to be measured appropriately. They don't value it enough so that what they're offering to the, the influencer is not valuable enough for the influencer to help them. The value exchange is misaligned because the, the company doesn't have a good understanding of the actual value that's provided. So those are some of the things about where it goes wrong. But I think like, I guess you could maybe use like a spark tour if you're looking for like a tool recommendation. Um, but to me, it's being present in the places where my target customers on are it's being a it's being active in those places. It's seeing who are my customers listening to. It's building relationships with those people and then finding opportunities to collaborate. So that's what I would do. What is your P, uh, point of view in regards to the power of having a community on social in B2B? Um, you can look at this as a as a community if you'd like or an audience or however you want to look at it. Um, and I like to command the attention of your target customers where you're not out there trying to beg them for attention and you put out information and they consume it has got to be the, one of the most powerful things that a revenue team could do. I'm not going to say a marketer here, a revenue team, because you got your sales team over here begging to talk to one customer and I can post content on LinkedIn and 100,000 prospective customers could see it in 24 hours. There's a there's a massive amount of value that can be created through this. So I like my point of view on it is like it is essentially a sheer requirement, whether you do it through the company page, whether you do it through your CEO's page or somebody else that has a significant financial stake, whether you flow that down to, you know, your customer success team, your marketing team, whoever's most appropriate. So you kind of scale that out. There's not a lot of things that are more powerful than having a engaged audience on social on a daily basis. Uh, what advice to make sure that our website affects effectively captures the demand that we're creating? Goswin, this is a good question. Um, so there's a couple things here. The first one is is sort of like understanding the conversion path. So the ideal conversion path for a customer is someone that lands on your homepage, which means they probably came through branded search or direct traffic. They land on your homepage. Then they're going to scroll through your homepage at however amount they need. And they're going to click on the top right button or a CTA that's embedded. And they're going to say, I want to get a demo or I want to buy something. Let's say for this case that they have an enterprise sales motion and they're going to say, I want a demo, then optimize that page and spend a lot of time trying to figure out how am I going to get more people to convert here? Do we have unnecessary fields? What is the actual, is the whole form above the fold? What are, what's the actual layout of the page? What's the messaging on that page? So there's a, there's a whole like technical mathematical flow of that. 
And then the second piece is like, is whether you do it through your own means or whether you use a tool like Winter to actually understand is the messaging on our website resonating with the people that land there who are our target customers. And so I think there's a huge element of just understanding what questions do people have? Are we communicating effectively? What else would they like to know? Why aren't they converting? And so, I mean, it's weird. And as we go through this, a lot of questions that people have root back to like, I need more customer insights. These things are flying in here. Great questions. What data points or qualitative insights do you recommend to understand the quality of leads or opportunities? So let's look at it in terms of leads. So, uh, or you can call it an account if you want to do it that way, but it's basically the same thing. You can call it an account if you want. So you got that thing that comes in and whether you call it an MQA, an MQL or something else, you got that. The number one thing to measure the quality of them is what is your sales team saying about the quality of them? Qualitative insights from the sales team. They talk to all the people around. So if you're sending them better stuff than the other ones they're talking to, you're gonna know about it. If you're sending them stuff that sucks, you're gonna know about it. So what is the sales team saying? What is the conversion rate from the actual, conver the actual conversion to MQL, MQA, to actually getting into a qual qualified meeting or better yet into qualified pipeline that wins at greater than 25%? What's that conversion rate? For us, like in through some conversion points, like that, the conversion into a into a uh, pipeline that we're going to win at greater than twenty five percent, like that could be a fifty percent or greater conversion rate. And like when if your sales team is getting these things from you, and then they're converting into qualified pipeline at forty, fifty, sixty percent, you're doing a lot of stuff right. So like the business data alone tells the story. It's so fascinating because that data is there the whole time, right? It goes back to my point on revenue operations. Like if revenue operations was doing the things that they should be doing, they should be looking at all those sources. They should be figuring out what is the stuff that's not working and not converting? How do we shut this shit off? How do we save millions of dollars? How do we save tons of time for our sales team? How do we go and redeploy that time, energy, effort, focus to go and do things that actually work? That should be a responsibility of RevOps. I don't see it happening enough, but that's another one. A couple of other things that I think are, that I've been honing in on that I think are really interesting. So if you look at the uh, self-reported attribution data and you don't measure it against the demo conversion, but you measure it against hero pipeline that wins at greater than 25%, or a lagging metric of lev revenue, and you take out that initial step, the data gets so much more clear. Like you, you can be scanning through the overall conversions to get a sense of what's happening, but you should really be filtering that and looking at it when it becomes pipeline that you win at greater than 25%, because you're gonna see different trends and you're gonna make different decisions. Those are some options. And then the last one that I throw out often, if you're, if you're a marketer and you're doing this stuff and you don't know, why don't you call five of them? And then, and then you can make your own assessment. You don't have to wait for any data or you don't have to ask your RevOps team to pull a report. You don't have to wait for your sales team to say something. You could go and get that information. In a company that's already using SDRs, how do you switch to demand gen without pushback from the CRO or sales? There's basically two points here, right? So the question assumes that the SDR function isn't working, but the first step is to 
decide whether or not it's working. If there's, if it's not, if it's working, then why, why change or switch? Why, why stop doing it? So run an analysis to understand out of all the SDR outreach and all the SDR follow-up, what's the, how much is converting to pipeline? What's our customer acquisition costs, things like that. And you're going to get a sense, then you're going to be able to take that data and present it to the CRO or sales team and say, this is what's going on. Do you think this is working or not? What we could do something else about it. What do you think? My perspective is that the number one reason why this stuff isn't working for SDRs is because we're feeding them people that don't want to buy because we're in a lead gen model. And I would actually recommend that we redeploy our SDRs to following up with accounts and going into prospecting into target accounts or people that fit our ICP that have demonstrated intent and are in market to buy, whether they visited our website or other intent targeting criteria, and we can tune that in. And then our SDRs have a better stream of data to go out and do prospecting. And then instead of marketing generating all these leads that never buy, we could go and take marketing, we could go out and create demand. And when we create demand and we drive pipe conversions, high intent website conversions that we call pipe conversions, and when they come back to our website and say, hey, I wanna buy, we don't need an SDR to follow up with that. They're in our ICP, they're a decision maker, they filled out the form that said they wanted a demo. We don't need Bant. We, it's like pretty clear that this person wants to buy. Why would we ruin the opportunity by passing them to an SDR for Bant or qualification? Let's just give that directly to an AE. That person's gonna convert into a meeting at a high rate anyway, and then let's go. Goswin question from you. How would you get your first five to 15 guests when launching live events inspired by demand gen live? So Goswin, if you remember how I did this, I wasn't looking for five to 15 guests. I actually just found one person, Katana Denardi, and him and I did that for probably six months together. And so perhaps you're not looking for a bunch of different guests. You're actually looking for one person that wants to do it with you. That's one option. The next option is you're looking for five or five to 15 guests to just ask. It's weird. Uh, a lot of people ask me to be a guest on their podcasts and I say yes without even looking if they have a pot. I was on a podcast last week. The guy had, didn't even hadn't even launched his podcast yet. So I think you'd be surprised how people would say yes. How many people would say yes if you just asked and don't think about that. Oh, I haven't launched this yet. My event doesn't have a lot of audience. Don't worry about that stuff. Just ask. And if you don't get a yes, then move on. There's plenty of people out there. Question from Christina. What's next for DGL? It's a great question. Um, what's, uh, what's going on right now is that I'm sort of like rethinking and re-strategizing as a company at Refine Labs. We've had a, a really interesting 2022. We had massive growth in, in Q1. It was incredible. We sort of started to stable off. And what we've done is we've taken tons of different feedback from customers. And the reality is that what customers need from us right now is different than what they needed in Q4 or Q1. The market has changed. And so the things that we've done is we started to rethink our positioning. We started to rethink how we price and package. We actually did launch entirely new pricing and packaging last week. And so that's live on the website and companies now can access at, There's much more accessible price points. There's different packaging and offers, and it gives there a, a lot more flexibility for the, the company to build and become a customer of us for exactly what they need. And this sort of goes into the next stage, which is like demand gen live was an incredible event. I owe a lot of um, I owe a lot to all the people that showed up, supported me, listened to the podcast, things like that. I got, I got so much out of it. And I also got a lot of personal fulfillment and enjoyment from doing it. And I'm at the stage now where I'm looking for sort of like, what's the next thing? If I'm being honest, like I scroll through my link, LinkedIn feed and all I see is tons of people parroting the things that I used to say from two years ago. 
lead gen versus demand gen, things like that. And so I'm working through like, what is what what is my perspective for the future? And so I'm excited to to sort of like formalize that, share it. I expect that we'll be back in September. The second the last part of it is that, you know, we're in the middle, we're in the middle of summer. I went through a move. I'm, in, I'm now now in Austin, Texas. And so I just needed a little bit of downtime to sort of like reflect, strategize, things like that. And um, we're still doing events, right? I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad a lot of people are here. So we're still doing events, but I'm sort of like waiting and planning to figure out what is actually going to be next for a recurring live event like we did with Demand Gen Live. It could be relatively similar, but I expect that we're going to have some new evolutions. One of my thinking, actually, I'd like some feedback in the comments on this one. Part of my thinking is that I, I plan on having the next event be far more academic, far more data backed, far more research oriented. I think the market needs this. There's so much stuff that people are just sort of spewing out. And actually, the funny thing is that a lot of the things that I say are data backed. I just don't pres I collect qualitative data and then I present it. And so I'm looking forward to formalizing more of how I present this data so that so that people can sort of like internalize it and see what's actually happening. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear more about that. All we see is in self-reported attribution is Google, marketplaces, et cetera. What are we doing wrong? Um, I'd, be I'd be interested in what you sell if, the, if marketplaces is part of it. Um, but if all you're seeing in self-reported attribution is captured demand channels, SEO, SEM, blogs, review sites, things like that, then you aren't creating demand. There's nothing else to say. You probably sell a commodity product or what's viewed by the market as a commodity product and companies are out there searching for the same category of that product they end up stumbling upon you throughout their search they convert on your four when they say google or something like that but you're really like the third vendor in line if that you could be even lower than that and you're not in the prime position of being the top vendor in the selection if you are getting this type of data in like if you're getting google and this type of data in greater than 30 to 50% of responses, then something's wrong. And it, all, all that it's showing you is that you have a gap in your marketing strategy. It's showing you that the way people are hearing about you is when they're already in market to buy. And you need to figure out how are people hearing about me before they're in market to buy, following our podcast, looking at our LinkedIn content, coming to our TikTok lives, and then moving into a buying cycle because we educated them along the way. The number, the number one thing people don't understand is if you're not, if you get like, if you're getting that stuff in self-reported attribution, it should, it's a, it's an insight that your strategy needs adjust, adjusting. And that's really all I use self-reported attribution for is to optimize my strategy based on customer insights. Okay, we got a, uh, a question coming in here from LinkedIn. How would you talk to customers, but because of business nature, all contracts are by NDA? Um, all of our contracts are by NDA too. Like that there's not there there's nothing wrong with having a conversation with a customer under NDA. That's actually pretty normal and standard, especially if they're gonna give you insights. I'd say two things. One, I think that you're confusing customers, which I say as anyone who that's either paying you or not paying you, but is in your target is a target customer. So you could start going after people that aren't paying you right now and get insights from prospective customers. Just because they're a customer and they're under NDA means nothing. You can go and talk to them. You just can't publicly share the information that they share with you. 
that can be traced back to them, which is totally understandable and totally real. So I would just say, I would say that that is a moot point and you should, you should just go, just understand what an NDA means. What tools do marketers need to be using? Jillian, what's up? Good to have you here. So um, let's see here in uh in in our stack like hubspot salesforce two that we use we use slack and then like the funny thing is that once you sort of get beyond the core stuff like i use an iphone i use airpods i have a sure microphone i have an ipod stand over here we have a nice camera over there i have a laptop right like it's so interesting how marketers think that tools are the solution getting here like me with with the 15 of you that are live right now right now and having a conversation and trying to help you get better and trying to share my perspective and answering your questions like this is what marketing is people are confused they think that the tool is how you get there linkedin is free producing a podcast is free going into the communities if they're non-paid communities is free most of the stuff that is the most valuable and the most effective in marketing is free the funny thing is when the things are free, it means that you're as a marketer, you actually have to be good at marketing. And so when when marketers aren't good at marketing, they default to, okay, the free stuff doesn't work for me. I guess I need to go buy stuff that promises results and, and typically doesn't. So short answer, and I guess I'll, I'll frame this up in a different way as well. Prove things out without the tools. And then once you prove it out that it drives results, just like I talk about in this like innovation pipeline that I've been talking about, once you prove it out that it drives results, it's repeatable, you know how it works, then apply the tech, then add more budget, then add more resources. But I think the company sort of like jump the gun and then they take unproven programs, like ABM's probably a great, uh, a great example here. They're like, oh, our go-to-market isn't working. Let's buy ABM software and completely do a 180 in our go-to-market strategy in an unproven motion. And then you're just sort of like, you're just sort of figure, you're like figuring it out on the fly uh, as an established business doesn't feel very responsible. Thoughts about B2B orgs hiring evangelists. I worry they'll be measured wrong. Yeah, Tim, just like, uh, just like your last question, the way that B2B companies think about and measure marketing prevents evangelism from really coming to life unless the evangelist is the person who owns the business or founded the business. And that's just the way it is. If you don't, if you don't measure it, if you don't measure appropriately and you don't think in the right way, then you would think that an evangelist is fluffy, doesn't drive results, things like that. So yeah, I agree that they would be measured wrong. I think that that's why you see very rarely a strong evangelist in a company that isn't the founder or a, or a significant shareholder because companies don't value it enough. And they don't measure it the right way. How do you account for speed to lead time to touch for inbound demo requests? It's so funny. It probably, it probably came from that study that got published back in like 2014 by an outsourced SDR firm that said, you got to follow up with your leads in five minutes or your, your close rates go down. Who published the report? An outsourced SDR firm that wants to sell you it because you can't follow up in five minutes. They can. Pretty interesting if you actually look at how this data is generated and where it comes from. It's crazy how often that stat is quoted without ever knowing the details about how the study was actually conducted, how the data was collected, who sponsored the study, who executed the research, what types of companies it was on. Was it a $2,000 a year product? Was it a million dollar a year product? 
Was it multiple products? Did it have multiple sites? There's so many, if you think about this in terms of scientific research, there are so many flaws when it comes to how people do research in marketing, something that Refine Lab's gonna solve soon. I can't wait to announce that stuff. Um, but when it comes to speed to lead, there's no, there is no speed to lead. Drive demo requests that convert into meetings at 50, 60, 80%. They sat on a meeting at, let's say 80%, drive demo requests to do that, and then let the, dem let the people that fill out the demo request just book a meeting with the rep. They convert to a meeting at 80% already. What's, what does it matter? Why do we need an SDR to follow up fast? Um, and so we'll, we'll do, we, we use Chili Piper to do that. Before that, we use HubSpot meetings. I'm tool agnostic, but there's plenty of things that can get that done. But before you do it, before you put the calendar link on that, you gotta make sure that the people that you're driving there are actually good and convert to pipeline and meetings. Otherwise, you're gonna fill your sales team's calendar with garbage and they're, not, they're gonna hate you. Um, and that is the reason why, if you look at most marketing teams, why they don't have the calendar on this form is because the people that go through that form don't buy stuff, are not qualified, came through performance marketing, came through Google search, and their job title is stripper or hooker or firefighter and could never buy B2B software. Speed to lead is a outdated way to think, drive high quality people that wanna buy the fit the ICP, let them book a meeting with the, with the direct rep on the calendar. Why do you prefer TikTok lives over say LinkedIn live events? Uh, I think it's Dean or Dennis, I'm not sure. Great to have you here, great question. So there's a couple of different uh, reasons for this. One is that as a probably one of the most high volume users of LinkedIn over the past three years, I haven't seen a LinkedIn live in my feed for what feels like at least a year. Why aren't they, why, aren't, why is it in the feed? Because LinkedIn can't prove that they can publish new features. They can't figure out how to get people to adopt new features. They flopped on stories, they canceled audio, live has been a, a letdown. There's been you know a lot of other things, but they put a new emoji, they put a funny emoji or something like that. So Twitter came, fell into the same trap. Twitter hasn't innovated on their products since they launched it in 2008. Um, and so hoping that LinkedIn can sort of like pick this up. One of, the, one of the reasons is that I don't see a lot of lives in my own feed. Another reason is because it's technically challenging. I can't just like, and maybe things have changed since the last time I looked, but you can't just like pop it up like TikTok, hit live and go. TikTok is a 100% mobile first platform. LinkedIn is not. TikTok is a 100% video first platform. LinkedIn is not. There are a lot of reasons why not. And TikTok has significantly better organic reach than LinkedIn does right now. It's like not even, it's not even close. It was more even maybe 12 or 18 months ago, but it's not even close now. Um, and so it's crazy that like, uh, given all of the volume of content that I produce with a hundred, I get more video views on some of my videos that I post on TikTok with 4,000 followers than I do on LinkedIn with 104,000. And that's just the maturity curve of how social networks work. And like, I, I'm invested in figuring out how to make TikTok work. So uh, those are some of the reasons why I've chosen TikTok lives over, over LinkedIn. Not to say that we won't do a LinkedIn live ever, but those are the rationale to answer your question. We got tons of comments backing up here. Give me a second. Are you an advisor or influencer for B2B companies or have you thought about becoming one? Christina, this is a great question. I would say that no, I'm not an, advi not an advisor to B2B companies, although I provide a lot of advice like I'm doing right now or in other calls or through that. So I provide advice, but I wouldn't consider myself an advisor and I don't get compensated for that. And I'm definitely not an influencer for any B2B company for the sole reason of my credibility. 
the, the number one reason why I want people to trust me as a B2B marketer is because nobody's paying me money. Look at everyone else who gives you advice. They're getting paid by somebody. There's a level of credibility that I want to hold where I never am a influencer for a company, which biases how I give advice to people. My only goal is to give the best advice that I can to people based on what I think will work best for them. And so I uh, do not plan on monetizing that way. What has to happen to fix the B2B buying process? When will three calls to get a demo dissolve? Tim, I think that this will dissolve when we have leadership changes. There's really, I, I don't uh, I don't know what else to say. People are like, oh, there's sales marketing alignment and like mark, marketers are obsessed with capturing demand, not creating it. And I'm like, uh, no, the, the, the fundamental thing that's wrong is that the people that lead the business do not think about marketing in the right way. They still think about it like they did in 2010, which drives everything down, which is why B2B companies are struggling to do this. It's just a very, it's very analog sales driven and sales focused. So um, what will need to happen in order to, to fix it? Buyers are going to demand it. I don't know what to say. They already are, but companies are failing. So like, it's just like if you didn't listen to your customer and how you developed your product, you might be able to get away with it for a while, but eventually someone else is going to come and figure out how to do it better. And you're going to lose customers and you're going to lose market share. So I, I see this as the same way. Companies lose so many deals because of how ineffective and inefficient their buying, their selling processes are and they force customers through it. Smart, co smart companies are already adjust, adjusting. We closed $500,000 deals in three calls. And other, other companies, there's a SaaS company selling a 30K ACV product that's listening to this at some point, and a buyer doesn't even get a demo until the second or third call. It's hilarious. All, our sales cycles for $500,000 deals are also shorter than companies that sell $15,000 deals because of how we market and how we sell. Uh, how to handle the transition period between strategies when there's a shift in direction, but there's not enough results to prove effectiveness. So you shouldn't change what you're doing until you've proven something else can work that can take over. I think that especially as you get more mature in your business, the idea that you're going to like, oh, our agency sucks. We're going to go and get a new one and you're going to make a hard change to how you do that. And you got 200 people in your company and then the lead flow changes, the quality changes, the budget expenditures change, who's following up with them might change. And you just create this state of chaos in your business. And so if you were actually going to do this in the right way, you'd keep doing all the same things that you were doing while you prove out new things that work better. And then you would move it over. Um, this is a, this is an and game, not an or game for the, for the interim, uh, top tips or findings for starting a demand creation, dark social content strategy, POV consistency. So before you start anything, you got to understand your customers. You got to go out and talk to people and understand what are these people struggling with? How can I help? Things like that. You also need to have some level of credibility with them. So you got to have some level of credibility. You got to be able to understand them. You got to do those things. Then you take all those insights and then you craft your point of view on the market. What are the things that aren't working? What should people do instead? Then execution, create, create, make, make, make it, create, create, create stuff, put it out, learn, iterate, optimize, things like that. Try different formats, try TikTok live, try a LinkedIn live, try YouTube live. We've done all of those. Um, try a zoom like the, the there's, 
two places where people fail. They fail in strategy and they fail in execution. The strategy part, understanding customers, having a unique point of view, connect, being able to connect it with, to business outcomes, measuring it the right way, those are some things. And then on the consistency side, being able to produce information that your target buyers want on a consistent basis and distribute it effectively in the places where people are is a massively underrated skill in business. Massively underrated. How to go about creating demand with a really new market machine learning model monitoring. So some good news here. If you're creating a new market, there's no other option than creating demand. People aren't out there looking for machine modeling, machine learning model monitoring right now. At least that's what you said. So like there's no other option than how then to create demand when people aren't aware or already looking for your solution. So if you sell a disruptive technology, if you created a new category of things like that, you got no other solution. You got no other, no other options. And so how do you go about it? You got to figure out who, who are the target people that we're going after. It's so funny. Like these answers become like sort of the same. Who are we going after? Go and do research and figure out the point of view, then create information that goes and, and demonstrates uh, that demonstrates that you have credibility that teaches people things. So, um, the, the gap here, and especially in a new market, it's probably driven by the technology, not the market problem is that you got to figure out who is actually going to buy this. And you got to go back to square one and talk to people. Love the thoughts. Have you, have you helped your internal org be active on LinkedIn? This is a, Dan. Great question. Actually, like not much. Um, we, do some level of like a tr uh, training during onboarding. So people get sort of like the, here's how you optimize your profile, here's how you post content, things like that. So we do a little bit of that, but honestly, it's because of the execution. So I started doing it and then uh, Megan Bowen joined us in 2020. She's been doing it. Now our whole executive team posts on a consistent basis. And when a company has an executive team that posts on LinkedIn on a consistent basis, you'd be surprised how fast everyone else does it. And so the way that you get this to happen is through action, through executive action, through leaders leading. If you want your company to be active on LinkedIn, why aren't you? If there's so many people that are like the CEO, like we want to do our employee advocacy program, let's buy software and tell our managers and directors to post this, this content. And you got to look in the mirror and look at yourself. So um, the way that you get this stuff done is by, to get people to do it is by leading in-person demos or Zoom customer preference, should I always try to do in-person when possible? Uh, Nate, you can talk to your customers about this, but my guess is like, maybe if you sell a physical product, then you gotta do it, uh, you gotta do it physical, maybe, but like, if I were you, I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be doing in-person demos and flying across the country for an introductory meeting. Uh, I, would figure out how to sell, how to sell the product remotely. Uh, we're coming up on time here. If you want to drop like everyone, drop your questions in real quick. We'll finish any any of the ones that are in here up, and then we'll uh, jump off. We got a question from a WP Barista. What's going on for founders? Too small for a marketing department. Where should we focus our marketing? Um, so, do you mean that uh, the company's too small to hire marketing? So, where should we focus marketing? So for a small team marketing department, I think that you should be focusing on, on positioning and probably enabling the sales team. If you're like a, if you have no marketers, you have a team of one, 
then you should be focused on how do I understand customers? How do I position my product? How do I enable the sales team? Because B2B companies that have a don't have enough money for a marketing department, look around. They got six salespeople somewhere. So uh, I would I would figure out how to make the sales team more effective. And then as you get more budget, you can start. And then like, so positioning website goes into that as well. So you got a sales enablement, buyer enablement category. Um, and then you can expand from there into in, in improving the customer buying experience to capturing demand, to creating demand. All right, everyone. This has been another episode of TikTok Live. I think this is like episode 14. So time is flying. It's been crazy to uh, to join. We had a great audience here. Love the love seeing new faces. Love the engagement. So we do this every uh, every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 p.m. Pacific. So if you want to be back, we will be back here next Tuesday. And I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.